Today on Backtracking, it's got wires that vibrate and bring music. What can this thing be that I found? Hang on. I gotta redo that. <laughs> that was a very strange reading. But you accented the, the wrong syllable. But can this thing be that I found? <laughs> that was William Shatner version. <laughs> it's like very. <laughs> it's got wires that vibrate and bring music. What can this thing be that I found? <laughs> what can this thing be? <laughs> it's got wires that vibrate and bring music. What can this thing be that I've found? Welcome to Backtracking, the show where two old friends take a second listen to influential bands' catalogs, track by track. I'm Roth Bagdasarian. And I'm Dan Fiden. We'll be taking this journey together, providing context, both personal and historical, on some legendary bands. For our first season, we've picked none other than Rush. Today on Backtracking, it's got wires that vibrate and bring music. What can this thing be? <laughs> I'm trying to read it, but I have it in my head the way Getty sings it. It's got wires that vibrate and bring music. What can this thing be that I've found? No, it's not some dusty old dulcimer. It's a double-necked Gibson, and it's about to assume control. That's right. It's time for 2112 one of Rush's most well-known and best-loved records. It sure is, Roth. When the infamous Down the Tubes tour supporting Caress of Steel skidded to a stop, our heroes were out of luck, out of cash, and out of time with their label Mercury Records. But that son-of-a-bitch Ray Daniels flew to the label's HQ in Chicago and did that thing that Daniels do. Mercury granted Russia reprieve and agreed to one more record so long as the boys in the band promised some radio-ready rockers. Daniels agreed. But Getty, Alex, and Neil did not. Despite knowing that continuing their proggy turn might cost them their record deal, the band joined Terry Brown and, yet again, entered Toronto Sound Studios in January of 1976. The recording of 2112 would last just about a month, during which time the band concealed their masterwork in progress from Daniels and the label, presumably to prevent their minds from being utterly blown. When completed, it was a blistering 38 minutes and 42 second opus, featuring six tracks of earth-shaking progressive rock, including the legendary 20-minute epic 2112. The record was released to an utterly unprepared world in the spring of 1976. So just how unprepared was the world in 1976? Pretty unprepared for 2112 or the other crazy shit that happened. To wit... George Burns wins a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for The Sunshine Boys. The U.S. Mint reintroduces the $2 bill. And California defeats France in the blind wine tasting, A Judgment in Paris. Jimmy Carter is elected, and New York City's Son of Sam serial killer claims his first victim. NASA releases the infamous Face on Mars Viking One photos, and Apple Computer is founded with the visionary mission to empower people to endlessly post about the face on Mars photos on Reddit. So, Roth, 2112. We've got a lot to talk about. This is an absolutely seminal album. We do. We do. And this is a hard one to unpack because it's so expansive and there's so much. It's so consequential. Um it's it's you're right i mean we, we talked about your mind being blown in the intro um and I, I mean my mind is so blown i'm still picking up the pieces so i'll do the best i can 
Rush reference right there. I'll do the best <laughs> I can. Uh, those who listen to the podcast, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Touches his nose. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get into it. All right, Ralph. Well, so the first thing that's amazing about this record is that apparently no one remembers the date it was actually released on. And I'm not even lying about this. <laughs> so the release date across various reference books about Rush varies from March 1st to April 1st, 1976. And there's some discussion about like the band doesn't remember the date it was released. And apparently back in those days, like Thursdays were the day that label, like there was a specific day of the week. That was the day new records were released. And the date that, you know, originally was thought to be the release date wouldn't have landed on that day. So long story short, generally speaking, people think that April 1st is the release date. That's when rush, on Twitter congratulated themselves on the whatever 40 year anniversary of 2112. But um, that was the first little mystery about this album. Yeah. Another thing about this album that's I think is worth noting up front is that according to the band themselves, uh, this was the album where they truly found their sound. So if you want to hear sort of like the, the, again, according to the band, what rush really sounds like when they finally had their sort of trademark rush sound. Uh, this is, uh, this is the album where, where that was first established. Yeah, there's no question about that. I think we're going to dig a lot into that, but I feel like this album is as close to kind of a perfect representation of the early, early phases of rush as we've gotten to date. I'm, I, I'm not going to say it's a flawless album, but I think it's a pretty darn great album. And, and when they, achieve that rushiness i think they really achieve it well yeah and you know i i actually started to get a little emotional listening to 2112 the from from a character's point of view because there are a lot of themes that are 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 present in 2112 that you'll hear in other rush songs like losing it off of signals uh chief among them is the the notion of having a taste of something and then being denied it and that's what happens to our protagonist in 2112, as we'll get into it. Now, um, the album itself, where did the name come from? Do you Roth, know? I, I got to tell you, I don't know. I do know that the reference, the musical reference in the um, overture of 2112 to the 1812 overture by Tchaikovsky was yeah. intentional. Yes. And... I believe, though maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, that they selected the year 2112 knowing about that 1812 reference, but I'm not certain about that. So maybe you can almost there. Straight. Yes, yeah. So 2112, they wanted that. They wanted to, to be evocative of 1812, the War of 1812, the 1812 Overture. Remember, these are Canadians too, and and there are our nemeses. Uh, you know, we we grew up in A Buffalo, long vanquished wrath. Yeah, but there was Fort Niagara. I mean, we we had like vivid. Me- I would go to Fort Niagara as a child, and I would like I would pretend like I'm aiming those cannons at Canada and shooting them. <laughs> uh, especially St. Catharines, right across the way. So I might have been shooting at Neil Peart. Um, anyways, yeah. So so they they were aware of that reference. Um, Neil Peart wanted there to be a palindrome, uh, mm. the name to be a palindrome. That's how they came up with twenty one twelve. It is the, number twelve awesome. backwards twenty one. It's an awesome name. I mean, it, it, it's really, 
with the with the benefit of hindsight and kind of knowing how how um much a part of the kind of prog rock prog metal music vernacular it's become i really do think it's an awesome choice that they named the album 2112 yeah and if i could live to 137 years old which is possible i mean it's not likely but it's possible with the modern technology if i could live to 137 years old i will live to see the year 2112 in fact that would be a really great year to die Wow. Well, Roth, that's very morbid. Why don't we move on to the album art? Yes. Hugh Syme, my friend. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about Hugh Syme. So Hugh Syme actually plays a huge role in this record in a couple of ways that we're going to, you know, one way is he actually, you know, played some instruments on this album. I don't know if you know that. Um, but Hugh Syme is responsible for he did the, the opening, right? The, the, he the did the, yeah. the Mellotron kind of stuff. Um, so he he actually you know is a, a musician on this album, but obviously he took care of the uh, album cover. Um, it depicts a naked man ass, naked man facing yeah. away from the camera. Thankfully, so so we just get the ass uh, and the red star of the Solar Federation. So the red star of the Solar Federation is a reference, obviously, to twenty one twelve. It is briefly the the actual red star is briefly mentioned in the lyrics. Um, oh, of, the red star uh, proudly high in hand. That's exactly right. Oh. Um, so that's really what the cover is. Other than that, there's a, a yet another text treatment um, of the name of the band and the album name. My personal opinion on on this album cover is there are just a couple of things that are, I think, worth noting about it. One is um, it it is a really awful text treatment again, and it includes some pre-Photoshop lens flare, flare effects, which are kind of stunning to me. I think overall, this is... Uh, Again, it's an improvement from Fly By Night. I think it's a lateral move from Caress of Steel. Um, but it really still, in my opinion, falls short of a lot of the Hugh Syme covers that we start to see actually beginning with the next album. Yeah, and you can kind of almost smell the bromine in the water in the studio where they shot that the the, the red star projected onto the water. Uh, that's that's what this evokes uh, for me when I look at the album cover. Uh, what I do like looking at about the album cover, though, is the the interior of the album, which you can't really see it unless you go online and, and look for it, because uh, there are a couple of things of note. Uh, one is uh, the the circuit board uh, that they used. I, 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 I'm dying to know, and if any of our listeners know this, uh, please reach out to us. Um, I'm dying to know what that circuit board was two. I, I, I have the feeling it was like for like a, a refrigerator, maybe <laughs> something, <laughs> some inane that feeling. Piece of technology from, from the 1970s that they just picked out of like a, a dusty, like cardboard box in someone's basement or went down to the local true value hardware store uh, and picked out <clears throat> and said, this looks futuristic. Uh, you know, with star Wars coming out a uh, year or two before this, uh, there, they use a lot of 1970s technology for science fiction purposes. And I think Rush, uh, or, and maybe Hugh Simon was responsible for this. I know you love him. I do too, but, um, they might've thought it was just as easy as picking up some 1970s technology and throwing some dramatic lighting on it. And therefore you have star Wars. Boom. No, there was no distress. They did no distressing of the technology. They didn't paint it. They didn't do something creative with it. They just showed us a freaking empty circuit board. There weren't even any circuits on it. It was an empty circuit board. I'm like, this doesn't even do anything. There are no circuits. It's just I an think integrated the, circuit board. 
The most ridiculous thing, though, I think you've got to admit about the art on this album. Again, interior, I actually think it was the back cover art was the band photo. So this is really the band photo that began the space kimono meme right uh-huh. it they are there in all of their 1970s prog rock glory you have alex looking absolutely effeminate in i think white satin head to toe which is mm-hmm. a strong choice you've got neil sporting the epic mustache that and, and epic hair that he has through a lot of this era that i actually think is a high point for neil um stylistically but he's wearing a kimono and he's got his foot up on some kind of um something not sure what it is you can't really see it in the photo and then you've got gad who um is looking very youthful has very long hair also wearing a kimono and if i if my recollection is correct i'm not looking at the photo as i'm speaking but if my recollection is correct he's showing a lot of chest as well is that right uh he is a a bit of it um you know it's i i I was just searching the internet man and you're not gonna believe this you can buy a rush 2112 album poster bed sheet duvet cover uh, <laughs> can you believe that it's black and silky smooth and it's got the integrated circuit board on it it's wow. got the naked man it's it doesn't have that photo of rush it has the other one the individual shots yeah uh i i am gonna have to have a, a conversation with my wife tonight <laughs> i think that would be that would well, be also uh... as 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 crazy looking as this um the 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 back of the album uh looks uh that wasn't the greatest subject of ridicule in the album it was actually alex's hat that he's wearing inside he's <laughs> wearing this right. white like 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 tony uh uh uh, uh who's scarface <laughs> yeah it's like uh like tony Montana. Yeah, yeah so you're saying it looks like a panama hat i yeah. actually was thinking it looks almost more like he's uh playing a woman on the crown you know <laughs> <laughs> It's well, like a, it's like a fat, I believe those are called fascinators, Roth. Apparently that was picked up by his wife, Charlene, who he's wow. still married to. And maybe he, uh, w- maybe he was confused. Charlene was picking it out for herself and he, and he thought she was suggesting it to him. Well, listen, if, if your marriage can survive your wife picking out that hat, uh, and then photographing it for posterity like it can survive anything so i think yeah. it was good for their them personally not so great uh, for the band's image well it, it is uh i i guess we can probably put a put a put a pin in this one or a period at the end of this sentence i yeah. think that the cover art the interior art all of it some highs some lows i think overall they're making progress from some of the earlier albums but i don't think as iconic as the red star of the federation has become within kind of rush lore um i don't think it's a super strong cover no moving on Uh, moving on to production and arrangements (laughs) terry brown you motherfucker (laughs) terry if you're listening we love you greg daniels eh, not so much so (laughs) so i mean listen terry brown is back credited with production Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Co-credited with production um, with the band, uh, credited with arrangements again here. Um, we can just maybe talk a little bit about the sound of the record. I think there are a few things that are worth noting here, but my opinion is that it is a much more layered sound 
um, than any of the previous records. A lot more multi-tracking, some interesting different instrumentation showing up here. And just generally speaking, I feel like it's a much less live sounding album. What do you yeah. think, Raf? Yeah, and and if you go back to Caress, Caress of Steel, ah, god damn it, <laughs> go back to Caress of Steel. Um, you you hear moments where you, they touch into the 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 sound that would become Twenty One Twelve, but it's not as deliberate. It's not as as layered, as structured as it is in Twenty One Twelve. I think with Twenty One Twelve, it was there was a higher degree of confidence, and I think a lot of that confidence stemmed from the fact that. Caress of Steel was such a failure. And they basically said, look, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down on our terms. So we're going to do the album we want to make. And that yeah. is actually quite fitting with the uh, with the theme of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which is all about uncompromising artistic creativity. Uh, so things just, it was, I think the sound is a, a product of, of two things. One is they've been playing a lot longer together. Um, they, they're, they're comfortable, but I think a lot of it is also that it matched the, the, what was really driving, like it was a deeply personal album for them. It wasn't just let's whip some stuff together and try and figure yeah. out our sound. I think they had a very clear vision for what they wanted to accomplish with this album. And it shows in the lyrics and it shows in the, the recording and the sound of the album itself. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think that this album it's hard to say for sure, but but you could make the argument that this album is a testament to the power of burning your burning your ships behind you, right? Mm-hmm. The old uh, kind of adage about burning the bridge behind you, burning the ships behind you. Um, it, they it, it appears as though you know in this album they knew that they were facing being dropped by Mercury and had a had a really clear realization that this may be their last opportunity to record an album as Rush. Um, or, or certainly their last obvious opportunity to record an album as rush. And rather than just kind of caving and capitulating to what they thought the label might, might, um, want, they decided we're going to do the album of our dreams. This may be our last shot at doing it. So let's make it as great as uh, we can. And I, I think they were able to achieve something really special here. And Um, I think writ large, you know, when you have limited resources and you have nothing to lose, it can really, you know, spurn creativity in a way that having unlimited resources uh, can uh, can sort of hinder that creativity. I think if you look at like a big budget movie where they've got like a five hundred million dollar budget, yeah, you know, it could be like, eh. But if you look at some like, you know, smaller movie, <laughs> yeah, smaller movie without as much money, <laughs> sometimes you get a much much better uh, result. Yeah, that's right. So I, I just want to stay on the sound of the record really quickly um, for a minute. So the guitars, Ralph, I one of my notes here is that I felt like the the guitars and the layering of the guitars in particular mm. really was a it was a great sound. I feel like it was a big evolution. There was certainly multi-tracking of guitars that happened on the previous records, but I feel like there was a lot more of it. And I also think there was a lot of 12 string on this album that I don't recall hearing on any of the previous albums. Did did you did you pick up any of that, Roth? Yeah, I don't hear any twelve strings on any previous Rush uh, albums, and I've I've I consciously noted it in the past, but not on this listening. I didn't. Yeah, well, uh, I I felt like the twelve string actually in a few different spots was a really nice addition. Um, the only other thing about the the sound of the album that I wanted to make a quick note of was the the drum sound. 
Um, actually I'll talk about the drums and I'll talk about bass, but the drum sound, um, very, I felt like the kick drums in particular have an amazing sound. That's an improvement on the previous albums. Very, very punchy and awesome sounding. And the other thing that I think is notable on here is Neil seems to be taking advantage of the, the sound of the toms, the panning of the toms in these huge fills that he does that are kind of complete Tom Tom fills that go all the way from his high toms to his low toms or all the way from his low toms to his high toms. There are a few of these fills on and with the panning that they do when you're listening to the album on headphones, it's just, they sound absolutely enormous. They sound like he's wearing that kimono while he's recording in the studio. In fact, that's something I would like to know um, is did they wear the space kimonos while they were working in the studio or do they wear something a little less comfortable? Cause nothing's more comfortable than the space kimonos. I, I, I don't know that we'll ever know that. And then I think the last thing on the, the sound of the record, maybe, maybe not so much the sound, but just the playing that maybe we can talk about a little bit later. I feel like Getty's bass playing on this album is much busier. He's really like kind of feeling himself on this album and he's playing a lot more notes i guess it's like the only way to say it there's a lot more bass fills i feel like the bass lines are a little bit more complicated and there's a couple of places in the song by song notes that i made that i'll point that out okay yeah i i don't i didn't hear that being the okay. bass player among the two of us okay so um, you're saying i'm but, wrong but i'm no i'm not saying you're wrong no, I'm no, just saying you're I saying i'm wrong <laughs> i can me I can, as being busy i, I would say right, like wrong. hold your fire is busier all right. We're going to count the notes. We're going to do an analysis. We're going to do a note too by note. Spice. Uh, too, too many notes. A young man trying to impress a part beyond his abilities. All right. Um, so do you want to do, yeah, do so get, get into, into the, the song music, by song? So 2112 is the first song, but it really is seven songs. So I'm thinking we play a little clip from each of the sections because we kind of have to. Because like, what what do you pick as a less than 15 second clip from 2112? Yeah, Dana, Dana, so this song is broken into seven sections. I'll name them yep. off real quick, and then um, and then we'll get into it. First section is the overture, like the eighteen twelve symphony by Tchaikovsky. Uh, there's an overture. Um, number two, it goes and uses the same motif as the the overture. It's the temples of Syrinx. Uh, it establishes the antagonists of the story. The priests of the temples of syrinx uh number three is discovery this is when our protagonist uh discovers a new form of artistic expression four is called presentation this is where he presents his discovery very naively to the priests uh and he's shot down uh then number five is oracle the dream this is where he the oracle shows him this elder race that had all these creative tools at their disposal and how they flourished number six is the soliloquy which is the uh, penultimate um uh, part of the character where he uh, contemplates uh doing something drastic and then the final one is called uh, aptly the grand finale and we won't yeah. divulge what happens in the grand finale until we get there okay all right well let's get started i'm excited uh so the first is uh, overture let's take a listen all right Now, the first thing that I would probably point out here is there are 47 seconds of pure atmospherics 
to open this album. 47 yeah. seconds, where really it's just kind of Hugh Syme making noises on like, I don't know, a Moog and a Mellotron or something. But it, it's it's very cool sounding, but it's a lot of time to just kind of noodle at the opening of a uh, an album. Pretty bold yeah, choice. And, and you know what? I, I'm a lifelong Rush fan. I sometimes fast forward to the Starfield. Don't, don't feel guilty if you do it. It's okay. Oh, really? Yes. It depends. Depends on the context. I mean, sometimes you want to hear the overture, you just don't want to hear noodling on a keyboard. No, it's more than noodling, um, and it is basically traveling to this distant galaxy, right, where the priests are. That's what the purpose of this. And that's then, what it makes you feel. Well, and then it subsides, and now you're 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 hanging in in just interstellar space. And then suddenly you're blindsided by, yeah. So comes in. the yeah. So this so the herky jerky counting stuff. I talked about the herky jerky counting stuff that they started to get into in the last episode where we covered uh, Caress of Steel. But these kind of musical moments where it really is just they um, synchronously will play notes very staccato notes with kind of rests in between them and there's just a lot of like um the band being kind of tight that's required in order for them to make sense and a lot of pounding that's required right but, but they but I don't i don't recall hearing a hurdy-gurdy though you no i, I meant uh, her, her, herky-jerky oh, herky there's jerky. no herky-jerky um herky-jerky so i i think of these as like these herky-jerky kind of like watch us we can play we're really tight band but mm-hmm. but clearly they kind of fell in love with that stuff on caress of steel and they loved it so much they decided to start their epic track on this album with it well i mean they fucked up the ending of what you're doing on the first album where they tried to do the hits in unison and they had to mess around with the mixing board <laughs> to get it to work uh yeah but they reward us uh if if we if we afford them the indulgence of all this herky-jerky kind of you know weird time signature stuff they reward us when they get into you know the groove right i mean they, they're they're again this is this is rush's like r- like riff driven rock at its finest i would say yeah it's true. I, I would also say that the um, uh, there, there's a guitar solo that that uh, begins at three minutes, mm-hmm. and I believe that is still in the overture. I don't actually have the the, to- yeah. the times for the overture in here, but yeah. What about um, the guitar solo? I, I just wanted to say that I think it's an absolutely killer guitar solo that starts at at three minutes. I mean, he just comes in with this like one note and it's just like and it's just such a great guitar solo i feel like this is the first of what ends up being many many absolutely scorching guitar solos from alex lifeson on this album well and this also has one of the most anthemic motifs in rush's catalog this is where they do the dun 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 and then hey hey dun 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 hey so if you've ever been to a rush show uh there's only one thing you got to say in those breaks and that's hey yeah um that's right and and at the end of it of course there's the alex lifeson um paying homage to the 1812 overture with the little dun 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 and the uh and the guitar. I, I I don't I mean I don't have much more to say about this. It's just music. Uh, I have a lot more to say about the the story, the lyrics. Um well, I have one more thing to say about the overture. It's really a question for you. Yeah. And I want to contrast this a little bit with what we talked about um when we covered uh Fountain of Lamnath on the Caress of Steel episode. One of the comments that I had about Fountain of Lamnath was while they kind of describe it as a single 
piece of music it really feels to me more like a concept album that is just half of an album um when what i mean by that is each of the kind of musical ideas that are represented in that um in that song are are in my opinion very distinct they they repeat one musical idea twice um but other than that it's just kind of it feels to me like a a a number of discrete songs with overture i actually feel like they and and throughout 2112 the piece holds together as a single musical piece and the musical ideas uh feel much more connected and interrelated than anything they've done before and for that reason i feel like 2112 is really their first successful kind of prog opus yeah dan i hate to say this but i agree with you 100 percent. so this was <laughs> this was written uh as getty lee explains in his book my f in life i can't say the actual title because it's uh it's a bad word actually no it's it's actually called my f in life um the um this was written uh in the in the, in bits and pieces they would they would sit down in between writing songs in between breaks on the previous album and they would they would just basically take this mismatch mish, mishmash of of disparate song segments and that's what became uh this song but the overture ties the themes together like it actually is like a real overture yeah. it, it takes themes from each of the elements and it um uh, like there's a, there's a more rocking, it's drawn out. It's a little slower leading us into, and I think as part of the guitar solo, that's soliloquy, right? So you do yeah. have, um, actual musical motifs in each of these sections that you hear in the overture and they tie together really, really well. They, they really do. I think it's a, that, you know, as, as we discussed last week, I think Fountain of Lamnath has incredible high points, but it really just feels like a conceptually connected album without kind of a lot of deep musical connection and this is very different this feels like a single um a single piece anyway yeah um, i'm ready to move on if you are rough yeah so to to take us into temple of searing so the the overarching theme um or motif and overture takes us and and borrows from and leads us into uh the second uh movement of this symphonic rock opera uh, it's not really a rock opera it's more of a rock motion picture i think the band would agree um uh rock novel it's a rock novel i don't know if anyone's used that before but we're going to coin that phrase right now so taking us into the second chapter of this rock novel is the temples of searings let's give it a listen that was dramatic i think it was so dramatic can we just talk about the fact that at 16 minutes into the song uh or there's just explosion sounds (laughs) there's just like isn't it like a 20 minute long song total no no no. it must be i must have copied this down wrong it must be six minutes in it's at the end of um right before and the meek must inherit well yeah exactly exactly um there's just explosion sounds you know because they didn't really blow shit up there must have been a stock it totally sounds like stock sound effects like they just like you know if if you actually listen to them the fidelity of the explosions is is really quite low compared to the recorded music it's kind of funny 
Yeah, it's it, the sound effects are kind of like the Wilhelm scream. Have you heard of the Wilhelm scream? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's yes. like the same scream you hear everywhere. And I, and I'm wondering. I think you could do like a whole like like a Dead Eyes type of podcast, like a mystery podcast, where you find what those sound effects were and where else they were used. And I bet it's an amazing story. So anyone's got that um, the resources to do that, it's a free idea. Yeah, those um, explosion sounds are trying. They're clearly trying to represent something. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but there are just explosions. I mean, the, it doesn't get too much more epic than to end one movement of a song with just massive explosion sounds. <laughs> but they're like '70s explosions, so they're a little muted. They're not like crystal clear. They're like they're like they're, they had to have been recorded in the 1950s or 60s or something. So, um, so Temples of Syrinx. So this is establishing the antagonists of our story. And these are the high priests of the Temple of Syrinx. And they, um, they basically are the gatekeepers and the keepers of all of the, the world's culture, all of their technology, all of their knowledge. Uh, and they, 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 they protect that and they govern it and they dole it out to the, the people um, with an iron fist, the goal of which is establishing a mean person. And what I mean by mean, I mean average, like M-E-A-N, mean average person, uh, and establishing that as the baseline human for this civilization. And you, and you need to just stay in line and be an average person, and that's it. And they and they do all this using what inside of pyramids that are described as being filled with computers. Mm-hmm. Minor point, but um, I don't know. I, Great I, computers. I, they fill I always, their hollowed walls. I, I like the the computer thing. So the music for this one, um, for me, absolutely rocking section. Um, probably the I would say probably the most famous section of this song. Would you disagree? Maybe the overture is. No, this is definitely the most rocking. The the most rocking parts of the overture are essentially clips from yeah. the Temples of Syrinx. Uh, but I, I think you know when you when you talk about you know the meaning of of what he's establishing here, and when I say he, Neil Peart, and and by proxy Ayn Rand. How do you say it? Do you say Ayn Rand? And I say Ayn Rand, but I don't know if Ayn that's Rand. right. And uh, you know, there's a line in here: "Look around this world we made, equality our stock and trade. Come and join in the brotherhood." So you get the sense that. The priests are, their intentions are altruistic, uh, and I think you see a lot of uh, of parallels to society in the '70s and even society today, where this notion of equity, equality, um, is noble. It is right. It is just, but it can be taken to a point where, um, and and I think the priests of the Temple of Syrinx are taking it to this point where they don't want anyone to excel in any way for fear of losing this average uh, sensibility of, of what an average person ought to be. Um, and this is a theme that comes up over and over and over and over again in Rush's lyrics. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I think I jumped the lyrics a little too soon. No, no, I think that's fine. I, I actually, I don't, I don't have too much um, to say about, about this section. I mean, I, 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 think it's the most rocking section of the music the lyrics you know i read through the lyrics i know the lyrics pretty well for this section of the song um or but, for but this, i think that the song but and um, i don't want to beat that dead horse with a stick but you know i think there's this sense though that you can take something that is the intentions of which are altruistic and it can you know you can end up you know sacrificing other beliefs and creating a, a world that is not free that is not you know, uh, 
liberal with a, a small L, right? Yeah. And and I think that's what um, is being established here is that like we have this grand vision, this idea for equality and equity, um, but what are the ramifications of that? Yeah, yeah. And that's the world into which our protagonist was born. And that's the world that he knows nothing other than that. Yep. All right. Well, anything else to talk about uh, with uh, Temples of Syrinx? No, this is or just establishing the, the the antagonist. And uh, and we're going to uh, meet the protagonist uh, in the next uh, chapter of this rock novel called Discovery. Yeah. Gives forth a sound. It's got wires that vibrate and give music. What can this thing be that I've found? So, have you ever read Ready Player One? I have. You have. Do you remember what he needs to do uh, to Wade Watts? What he has to do to get the crystal key? God, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, he had to do a bunch of things to, to, to get it right. Yeah. So I'm going to, so he had to learn to play this. Listen. Did, did they, did, did, uh, Ernest Klein actually say that in the book? Yes. In the book. They called out, I mean, talk about a deep catalog reference. And it wasn't even yeah. 80s because the movie was most about 80s and this is 70s. So it yeah. would have been something that Holloway, who is like the creator of the Oasis, who yeah. passed away and set everyone, all these yeah. avatars onto this wild quest. Um, he goes into, uh, I think it was a cave or something, just like yeah. the, the story is in, in, the, in the rock novel 2112. And he has to play the third section of... 2112 and he's yeah. given a guitar it's a gibson and he has to play that passage wow. and i remember reading the book and i'm like oh my god i want to play it i would have gotten the crystal key oh, and man. and i was so looking forward to the movie to see yeah. how they were going to um do that scene and of course it was just cut out of the movie entirely it wasn't even in there yeah. The movie was pretty forgettable, but, um, mm -hmm. that's actually, an, that, that's amazing, Ralph. I don't remember that. I read the book a long time ago. I don't remember that, but, um, uh, that's a, that's a great call out. Another, I think call out here is more sound effects. Yeah. The, 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 the water of the, the sound of water, presumably from the Creek and the waterfall that's described here, um, is playing. I'm not pointing that out just to kind of make fun of it. I think it's interesting that they're using these sound effects um, so aggressively here because it really is just representative of how much less live uh, this album is, or, or or maybe a different way to say it, it would be how much more heavily produced it is, mm -hmm. yeah, which I, I, I like. It's a bit, of, but I think it's a departure. But they have done shows where they've played twenty one twelve in its entirety live, and it, and it is playable live. But there are yeah a lot of yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean more that this is a departure from the way they were recording their earlier records. Like there's a progression of the number of overdubs and things that they're doing on each record from rush through fly by night through caress of steel. But I feel like 2112, they fully embrace that for the first time where they're the instrumentation is much more varied. They're doing things like sound effects. It's just much more of like a, 
let's get rangy in the studio kind of a recording. Yeah, but in in the Ernest Klein novel too, by the way, he ha- the Avatar has to travel to a place called Syrinx oh, and my. locate Alex <laughs> Lifeson's Les Paul. So, oh my God, how did I not remember yeah, that? Go back and read it. It's, That's funny. It, I, I remember my I like I mean my mind was blown on top <laughs> of being blown uh, by the by the music, by also Ernest Klein's novel. Um, so yeah, so this is where the protagonist picks up the guitar and and in the song he's actually playing. The music that's the idea and he's describing yeah. the guitar he's never seen one before and and a guitar is a is a is a piece of technology it's something that was created by man or humanity and um it's uh it, it it's 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 the fire inside of him that he's just you know like a child sees this oh my oh my god look this is what the things i'm feeling i gotta i gotta take this to the priests they they need to know about this so uh, are you okay to move on to the music a little bit more? Yeah, let's talk about the music. Okay, so the music in, in Discovery, it's probably going to annoy you, Rafi, but I will say that Discovery, the the the, the Disco- Discovery, that movement kind of generally speaking, very sweet, 12-string, reminds me of Led Zeppelin in going to California mode. Not that that's like, not that it would make me upset. <laughs> well, you, I think as you listen through these podcasts, I love Led Zeppelin. Every me? time I mention Led Zeppelin, you're kind of like, well, I just hate Led Zeppelin, but I don't um, hate them. I just don't think they have the alchemy rush has. Well, I, alchemy aside, I do. Th- it, it was a little bit evocative to me, but I mean, it's almost folky in its, um, in, in its tone, I guess. Um, but I think what's so cool about discovery is how sweet, how earnest how genuine it it sounds um and it really sets you up for this amazing shift when you get into presentation it flows into presentation extremely well in terms of like the instrumentation i think that that kind of 12 string continues into the the first the the kind of protagonist part of presentation um and it sets you up for the priests to really hammer you we'll talk about that when we get to um presentation but i think discovery is uh very sweet very folky um soft very very short too and they both musically and lyrically in terms of the story, they they build this sense of pride, of achievement, of accomplishment. And like, you know, this character. So a- any great story, the protagonist needs a, a desire, a want. And, it, you know, it's, it's represented in musicals with the I want song. And this is sort of the I want song for the protagonist. And it, it does such a great job of bringing you in and empathizing with what he's feeling hearing the music because you're listening to them play the music too so you know what this character is feeling and it really draws you in and makes you vested into the character and you want you're rooting for him you're like okay he's gonna he's gonna revolutionize the society by bringing this new discovery to the masses yeah i mean i think the musical tone and the lyrics fit together i think thematically it sounds and lyrically feels like the protagonist is very naive to me it's a naive sounding section, I think. Yeah, it's it's interesting because he he's naive, but not of his own doing. He's naive because he's he's been shielded from this sure. elder race of man that we come to learn, you know, once had this technology. Yeah, but that naivete, I think, bookends the with um, when we get to soliloquy. It mm-hmm. it it's like there's ultimate kind of naivete. And then that gets bookended with this kind of like um, complete loss of innocence 
that's represented in soliloquy, but we'll talk about that more when we get to yeah, that. Yeah, well, why don't, why don't we get into presentation, which is uh, chapter four, because this is where the two worlds collide. Okay, let's do it. So he, he comes before the priest. He's, his first words are, I know it's most unusual to come before you so. And the music at this moment is very jaunty. It's very kind of like, hey, I'm going into yep. the temple of yeah. Sharing's Man, and they're going to love me. They're going to praise my name, right? Um, so what happens? He, he yeah. presents this to the priest. What happens, Dan? You tell the folks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, the, the priest basically shit on him. They take a big shit on his idea. They take a big shit on his guitar and they just really tell him to, you know, it's they not scream necessary. At him. Like, yeah, like, they scream at him. I know. Well, that's, that's after he appeals the first time. Um, it really is like this very interesting exchange between the, the protagonist and, and the priests here um, that comes across um, very clearly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward narrative in these lyrics, but it's great. And I think one of the things that makes this section of the song, this movement, my personal favorite movement of the song is how clearly their musical choices, the, the kind of stylistic choices that they're making during the protagonist sections and the priest sections are so heavily contrasted that yeah. it really is clear that there are different characters speaking with different emotions, right? Oh yeah. Like it's, and, but it's and done I love brilliantly. That. It's done yeah. brilliantly. Like it's not contrived. It's not pretentious. It like fits musically. It fits lyrically. Uh, it's just really great storytelling. It, it, and, and you hear Getty's two, in some ways, Getty uses these two qualities of voice that yeah. we've talked about a little bit in the previous albums really, really well here. He he uses that sweet kind of schoolboy sounding voice for the protagonist. And then as soon as the priests start talking, he, he busts into the shriek, you know, that kind of Getty Lee shriek that I think a lot of people think of when they think of Rush. Yeah, and, and to pinpoint it to like one phrase where he says, the world can use this beauty, right? The yeah. way he says it in the midst of all this screaming and dismissiveness from the priest is just like, he's he's he, he's naive, this character, but he also is standing up for himself. He's yeah. saying, no, you're, this is, this can't be like, you're, you're, you don't, you don't understand what I'm feeling. Yeah. And, and they just completely dismiss it outright. Now, another thing that I wanted to highlight about this section of the song that I love, and it's very subtle, but I know you're going to know what I'm talking about. And it follows on the comment that I just made about the stylistic choices between the protagonist sections and the priest sections. Um, there is a slight reduction in tempo when the priests start talking. Have you noticed that it very, very slight, it may actually not even be a reduction in tempo, but it's a change in feel where maybe they're playing a little bit behind. It's a little bit draggy. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Be, yeah. Uh, and it gives it this yeah. heavy menacing yeah. feel, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's such a subtle choice, Couldn't but I think it makes, <laughs> it makes no an, it makes an incredible difference. I, I really think that it, it, 
it changes this kind of jangly 12 string section where the protagonist is talking. Obviously the distorted guitar comes in and everything. And, and Neo really starts kind of like smashing the drums, but there, that slight change in feel, I think gives it this, it makes the most difference of anything that they do. And I think that illustrates a, a, a general point with music, which is, you know, you could be a guitarist that shreds, who is technically, you know, no one can do it better. And, and it, but does it like, what's the point? Like, what, where does it go? And I think that with the guideposts of a really great story here, with those moments where, where yeah. Pierre is sort of just behind the beat or playing some yep. weird sort of syncopation or side rhythm, whatever it is, um, everyone is doing their job musically, lyrically to tell this story and it and yeah. all these layers create like a really vivid visual of yep. of where this person is and 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 what's going on um you know how i said this about caress of steel i said it right that time um how it was like watching like a harry potter movie to me it was like like this even more so because it it, it paints such a, a crystal clear vivid visual of the story that you just close your eyes and you are there and it's 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 better than a movie because it's whatever you envision in your head is is what you're seeing yeah now one more point that i want to make about presentation minor point are there any more famous drum fills in all of rock and roll history than the drum fills that appear throughout presentation and particularly in the beginning of presentation these are the these are the absolute I think that when, you know, when people kind of like think of rush stereotypes, they think of like air drum stereotypes and they think of these huge, yeah. like left to right, like air drum fills, right? You got those. Fills. I think that those fills, I think that that whole perception comes from presentation and the fills that he plays here. He certainly plays huge fills in other songs and earlier songs, but these are just so overwhelmingly epic. And like I was saying earlier, they pan from left to right. I mean, they're just awesome. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, they're not for the lay listener. They're not like the, like, if you hear them, it's not like you'll recognize necessarily the drum fills, but it's, it's, it's the ilk of the drum fills. It's like that style <laughs> of like, like from like 270 degrees to like zero degree, you know, Neil Peart. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, they're awesome. And they're, they're just awesome. They're so ostentatious, but they fit so well in this, in this, uh, in this section. Yeah. So he's dismissed uh, by the priests and they basically say, don't annoy us anymore. We've got work to do. Just think about the average. Like they basically send him away. They take the guitar, break it over their knee. I don't know if they break it, but they take the guitar and they they're basically like, go away, little man. Uh, yeah. And and that leads us into um, the next one, which is called Oracle the Dream. And uh, let's let's give it a listen. A lot, lot happens here. I Oracle. This is a this is an interesting section, and I think this is lyrically maybe the only. It, this is where the the album starts to get opaque lyrically. It is unclear whether this is purely a vision 
this is like a this is like a, a dream he's dreaming at about about a place that doesn't exist that's not entirely clear or whether there is some literal oracle who has like you know projected this image to him whether he's in some real kind of meaningful literal contact with some other civilization elsewhere and in in the universe that i mean that's the way i read it well okay so it's very interesting you bring this up because even ged mentions this in his book about the ending and we'll, we'll get to the grand finale and talk about that a little more detail but you know he, he talks about the ambiguity of the ending of the story but let's look at the facts so in presentation um, the priests themselves tell him about this technology that helped destroy the elder race of man. And in Oracle, the dream, he speaks of the elder race. So he's had his hands on literally a piece of technology that the elder race used to create. Uh, so he's had a taste of what the elder race had. Um, the priest told him that this elder race existed and that it helped destroy them. He had, they had a different take on what the technology's ends were. Um, and so I think he is taking what he's learned. Okay. There was an elder race and they had these fascinating technologies. Maybe they weren't all bad. Maybe it was actually good. Maybe, you know, so this is what this dream is, is him traveling, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Oracle to the elder race to see not only the guitars that they have, but the art and the creativity and the, you know, independence of thought. So this is, uh, him dreaming. But is he, but is he literally, is he literally traveling in some kind of magical way to see a real place? Or is he using what you've just said, that kind of moment with the priests and the reference to the elder race to dream of a society that doesn't actually exist? I think he's dreaming of a society that does exist. I think Okay, that, so you're saying yeah. that he just coincidentally is dreaming of a society that does exist. I mean, for Christ's sake, suspend your disbelief. We're just at a temple of Syrinx that you're no, talking Rob, about. No, listen, <laughs> either the Oracle came to visit him and he was, you know, played by John dream. Leguizamo, let's say. Let's just say it's John Leguizamo. Okay, John Leguizamo comes down. <laughs> and you he's just playing plus the album for me. It's an even better <laughs> album now. Okay, so John Leguizamo comes down. But I, I, I think that this is, this is a, you know, maybe it's, it's more mystical and strange if he is in fact dreaming of a place that does exist and there's no explanation for how that could be happening. But I do think is, our decision yeah. about how to interpret these lyrics must have an impact on how we interpret grand finale, Roth. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's a line from the lyrics. I'm reading this verbatim. Very verbatim. Verbatim. <laughs> you're a verbatim. <laughs> I got a verbatim in the, uh, the closet you, here. You keep on verbating. You're going to uh, go blind, Roth. <laughs> so the elder race still learn and grow their power okay before that he says they left our planet long ago this is this is john leguizamo presumably speaking to the the protagonist whose name we don't know um th they left our planet long ago the elder race still learn and grow their power grows with purpose strong to claim the home where they belong home to tear the temples down home to, home to tear the temples so, down so there is a intervention here that's being planned by the elder race whether that's what he's dreaming or whether it's in reality mm -hmm. we don't know yeah and, i would say that this is this is really the this is the core interesting 
Okay, this is the core thing about the soliloquy. Okay, I think we now need to kind of move towards the end of the lyrics of the soliloquy. So clearly what's happening here is he kills himself. So do, do we didn't we didn't listen to soliloquy yet, did we? Oh no, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm spoiler alert, <laughs> <laughs> guys. But we don't know. Just but no, we don't right. debate around that too. All right. Well, so let's, let's why don't we go on? We'll go on to soliloquy. All right. Okay. This is soliloquy, uh, section six from twenty one twelve by Rush. Okay, so all right he guys himself. he kills end of, himself end of story <laughs> you know you'll never believe what happens in that m night Shyamalan movie <laughs> bruce willis is actually a ghost guys oh geez <laughs> so um anyway soliloquy i think that the the thing that you know when we go back to the oracle if he was if the protagonist was somehow truly in belief that the message that he received during the movement oracle was true why would he kill himself and why would he not just wait for the elder race to return to megadon or whatever it's called i think he just he you know that that common theme of having a taste of something and then being denied yeah. it is so so crushing that he just can't stand for it but it's it, it is it's very it's interesting so a couple of things one is, is our protagonist here naked man? And yes. if he kills himself, is that why we never see him again? Um, well, we or, do or, see him again in Hemispheres. You see a naked man on the cover of Hemispheres. Yeah, but is that naked? Is that him with, like, now that he's discovered the other face and now he's in a surrealist painting? There is no mistaking that man ass. But I think, but I think, that, and then if he's also <laughs> the guy moving honestly, pictures, I'm moving. So no, but this is I don't know. Let's put a pin in that, but this is very important. So so the song ends. I'm just gonna start because we already started talking about it. He doesn't commit suicide necessarily. He just says, My lifeblood spills over. That's the end of it. That's the last yeah. we hear from him. Yeah. If you if you slit your wrists and you survive, your lifeblood is still spilled over. If you slit your wrists and you die, your lifeblood is spilled over. So but we don't know if Roth, I'm strongly disagreeing. Died. You don't refer to it as lifeblood unless it's unless it's being spilled while you're dying, I don't think. It's blood. Not like it's not like when you blood. go to like the Red Cross, they're like, hey, come in and give your lifeblood. But that's what you're doing. <laughs> if they were to say that. But nobody would say that. In fact, if you're from the Red Cross marketing team, you should do a whole lifeblood uh campaign it's very compelling they should do a soliloquy life themed lifeblood let your lifeblood spill over at your local at your local donation center i your mean Roth, nobody's gonna do that over. If, if they called you and they're like hey Roth, we just need your lifeblood real fast you'd be like fuck no <laughs> i mean i all right so listen well, he refers I, to it as a dream so he says the sleep is still in my eye the dream is still in my head so yeah. According to the protagonist, that was a dream he just had. It wasn't yeah. uh, being transported to another place. Yeah. So he was just envisioning, imagining. Like, yeah. And he says, just, I, um, uh, what does he say? He says, in a world, uh, just think about what life could be in a world that I have seen. So he keeps I don't going think back I can carry on. Yeah. 
Um, but- so, uh, so I think I think that the core irony, the cruel irony of this, and we'll get to it when we get to grand finale. But I think this is really the cruel irony. The story that's being told here is of the protagonist. He finds the guitar. He presents it. He's turned down. He has this dream that he thinks is just a dream, right? He genuinely does not believe that this elder race is coming back. He yeah. he thinks that he's imagining this real world place. So in soliloquy, he he's like, he wakes up and he's just like, oh, fuck, why did I have to wake up? That was such a beautiful place. I don't live in that place. I'm going to kill myself. But because and he much discovered like- the guitar, he knows that this place exists in essence, whether or not it's literally in existence. So he's he's experienced what this place could be like re- in reality. He 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 knows that there could be a place like this, but he doesn't know that this place does in fact exist. What he knows is that some place that had music had had musical instruments used to exist before the before the priests. Before and the I just Federation. want to point out that we're having this conversation free of any kind of uh, licit or illicit drugs, and it just goes <laughs> to show you the the like the depth of where rush goes it's right? it's right the the depth is remarkable fathoms yeah so anyway i think that this is the way that i always interpret it i feel like there's you know that um you know that chris that old christmas story i can't remember the name of it where like you know the one guy gets a comb for his wife for her beautiful hair oh and she and, and she cuts her the, hair the, off the to buy the him a gift of the magi. Yeah, gift of the magi. I think this is a little bit of a kind of a gift of the magi style gotcha, where it's like he finds the guitar, he has this dream, yeah. he thinks it's only a dream, he kills himself. Then we find out as the reader, right after he kills himself, oh my God, it wasn't a dream. Somehow he yeah. was really in touch with these other people. And now they've come to save the day, but it's too late for him. Yeah, that's so, the story that I think is being told. Uh, here I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. I'll buy that okay. for a dollar. Um, right. And this is uh, this theme here is very longing. The musical theme it's it's used Beautiful. in the overture, uh, and it again it just matches the story, the lyrics, the way Getty sings. I mean, there's so much uh, anguish in his voice. It's, it's and it's real. It's not like we're not saying this to like you know. It's like real. Like you could you can he really embodies the character in this. Uh, in and, a way, I don't think he does in any other Rush song. I mean, no, really- I, I actually I would agree with that. I mean, this is like in in a way, and not in a bad way, in a good way. This is kind of like musical theater. He's playing like multiple parts here. I also yeah. think the other thing about soliloquy that's amazing. My notes say simply the guitar solo. Omg, I think the guitar solo oh, yeah. in soliloquy is just awesome. And you know what? I want to point out another thing here too, because I'm a huge fan of Yes of Genesis. Not as big. I, I like them. I just haven't gone deep in the catalogs of like Jethro Tull or King Crimson, which were the bands that these guys were really sort of looking up to uh, when they were in this period of their music, right? They they yeah. were looking at these bands, these progressive rock bands, mostly out of England, that were doing some musically unbelievable, like Rick Wakeman. I mean, how do you how do you top what he does on the keyboards and as a composer? You don't. You just don't. He's like top a modern it. day Mozart, but the level and the depth of emotion and story just sheer storytelling in 2112 yeah is deeper and more touching than anything i've ever heard from anything by any of those other bands yeah i think that one of the things that that um is helpful in these narrative songs that rush does in particular in the early part of their career is the narratives tend to be 
and I don't mean this in a bad way, straightforward. Mm-hmm. They're understandable. The narrative comes across clearly in the lyrics or clearly enough that you can interpret it as a narrative. There's not a lot of kind of poetic obfuscation in the words that are used or anything. So it's relatively, I think, relatively easy to follow. And the interpretation really comes through the kind of interpretation that we were just doing, debating what actually happened. It's yeah. not because we don't know what Neil mean meant by this certain word or what emotion he was trying to kind of like describe. It was, it's a little bit more like, um, yeah, we just, you know, there, there, there are interesting, there are interesting questions that the narrative brings up. Yeah. And and just so you don't think I'm a a rush fanboy, if you look at the theatricality of their, their look, their presentation in this era, uh, with the space kimonos, the Panama Jack hat, compared to like Peter Gabriel and what he was doing theatrically, no comparison. Peter Gabriel wins that argument, but musically storytelling, well, I should say storytelling wise, um, you know, rush just achieved something here that, that is, is without fear. You know what? It's a, it's a really great point, Roth. And it reminds me again of the lamb lies down on Broadway, bringing up Genesis, bringing up Peter Gabriel at kind of the height of his theatricality Mm -hmm. in Genesis anyway. Um, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is a single narrative as well, but it is very, it's, it's, it's cerebral. um, It's, it's, it's nice. It's, it's difficult to follow. I mean, there are certain songs in there that you know that they fit into the narrative, but it's very difficult to tell. Like the carpet crawlers is one of the legendary songs off Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, but it's not entirely clear what's being described throughout the course of the cult ca- yeah. carpet crawlers and how that fits into the overall narrative of you don't, the you don't protagonist. Feel. You, you think you're like, Oh, that's very clever. That's very interesting. And like, and it's very entertaining. It's, it's a great song. It's a great album. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm talking about like just the emotion that's like yeah. the, the humanity um, <laughs> is just so the narrative of that album is not what makes that a great album. And I would say that at least part of what makes 2112 a good song is the narrative. If that yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, like think, it, it contributes as much as the music. Yeah. Just, just in this conversation. Yeah. So, right. so his lifeblood spills over and then it goes into like a really happy, upbeat riff. It's very heroic. Yeah. Yeah. So let's hear it. Let's, let's listen to it. The section called grand finale from the song 2112, which is on the album 2112. So so yeah, there's there's only uh, uh, one lyric in this entire section. You want to do you want to yeah. tell the folks what it is? Attention, all planets of the Solar Federation. We have assumed control. That's it. Okay, so this is the. I I, I feel like this is when people talk about the kind of narrative uncertainty and the cliffhanger of twenty one twelve and what you mentioned. Getty said in my F and life, and has certainly been stated elsewhere. Is this question? Is the Solar Federation being overthrown? at the end of grand finale and has, you know, presumably the elder race assumed control or has the solar federation somehow reinstated control. It was the space force. 
which what no so i think it's pretty crystal clear it's the elder race returning yeah to claim their homeland the question for me is yeah is this like the light at the end of the tunnel as he slips off into death or is this reality and he missed it because he killed himself i think he missed it if he missed it it's a tragedy it is if, a tragedy. That's why I think it's a tragedy. Free, if death sets him free, that and what and I could see Neil Peart making this argument that oh. death is better than living under an authoritarian rule. Ooh, that's actually an angle I haven't I haven't contemplated yet. Then then death is the liberation. It's the apotheosis of the character, right? It's uh, I see. So you're saying that this is some kind of vision that he's having post mortem. I'm not saying that is. I'm saying this is the question. No, that's is, what you're is, saying. Is, is it a tragedy you're saying, or no, is, you're it, is it is it is does he miss the the liberation by killing himself or i don't know really I, the, the way that i've i've that's the way that i've i think that what you're saying is like that is an even more tragic and dark vision of the song i think yeah and it, with the music being so heroic and upbeat yeah. at the end too i think that it's a little bit more twilight zone we're going to get to the song Twilight Zone. Clearly, Neil Peart is a fan of Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was really known for these zinger endings where yeah. the thing happens that you don't expect right at the end. I think that this is, an, in some ways, a Twilight Zone song, right? This is, mm -hmm. he go he finds a guitar, he, he ends up having this vision of this amazing civilization. He thinks it's just a dream. He kills himself out of frustration. Then the thing that he thought was just a dream becomes real and he's missed it because he killed himself that feels to me like a very twilight zone kind of a way to end it it's yeah. very dark um but i think that it at least comes with this idea uh there is some hope in that while the protagonist is not going to live to see this future at least the other citizens of M megalodon what's it called <laughs> the so I, i've read that the city that's described in this has a name Ooh, i've read this I a couple know. of different places i don't know where they actually i don't know where the source material is that the the city has mm -hmm. a name but it's like megadon or something like that well anyway. i think i would love to do some research to see if anyone has done a doctoral philosophy thesis on this <laughs> i if guarantee they, they have if they haven't like go with god and, and do that child um, I, it, it's, it's an, I mean, it's a lot to, to process, but it's very, uh, it's multi-layered musically, lyrically in so many ways. Um, you know, e even, you know, when it gets down to what the band, what was going on with the band at the time, you can see how they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're sort of fuck it. Let's, let's, let's do this attitude goes right up into the end when the life bud spills. It's just, it's just great. It's, it's very deep though. It makes you want to, you know, travel the world to find a, a joint, to smoke uh after That's, after and, 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 and rough what an amazing that was an amazing segue <laughs> that well, was a, well, you, so you bring it home you bring it home i don't know what to say other than why don't we listen to passage to bangkok So Passage to Bangkok, three minutes and 34 seconds, um, tight little song. Actually, the rest of the songs on the record are tight, but um, three minutes and 34 seconds. Why don't we talk about the lyrics? Yeah. 
to so start. I, I, I would I, say from a storytelling perspective, this song is more fantasy than 2112 for the band. Because the themes that were discussed in 2112 were very real and present to the band, things they had experienced. Whereas A Passage to Bangkok, as Getty Lee says in his book, uh, they had never been west of Vancouver or east of London when they wrote this song. So they're making, it's like it's like uh, James Taylor's Mexico. He'd never been to Mexico and he wrote a song about it. Although he does admit that he'd never been there in the song. So I don't know that I'd be comfortable <laughs> making the argument that this song is less literal than 2112 is, but I see where you're going with that, Roth, and it's it's taken in the spirit it was intended, I think. Personally, well, if, if we just parroted what's already been said about these songs, then this wouldn't be the backtracking podcast featuring Rush. <laughs> I think that this song, lyrically, is so incredibly awesome. I just love it. I it think is. that it is this picture of these kind of traveling pot smokers. It's totally unclear whether they're smugglers or what, but it, it, it in some ways it doesn't matter. It's just like, we're going to travel all over the world and smoke pot all over the world, which I just think is such a funny idea for a song. Well, and for such a heavy song to to precede it like this is neil peart having fun i mean it's it's it must have been a blast to write the lyrics our I'm first guessing. stop is in bogota to check colombian fields i love it i love Native it smile and pass along a sample of their yields so i love this song i still love this song on re-listen when i was a kid i loved this song i i have got to say when we were you know eighth grade ninth grade whatever it was when we were really starting to, i was really starting to get into rush and we were hanging out all the time um the, the, like great for the there were some there were some drug songs that were incredibly popular like mm -hmm. casey jones the the grateful <laughs> dead song very yeah. very this song was to me so okay. much cooler than any of those songs. Yeah. Did it glamorize marijuana usage? Yes, it did. Well, you know, this was the first, I believe, at least in, in my canon of, of, of memory, this was the first Rush song I think I've, I'd ever heard. And the oh, way really? I heard it, yeah, I remember a relatively poorly played, but good for his age, my brother Ara playing this riff. <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. Wow. It wasn't played with the same level of, of technical skill that Alex Lyson, but he had just started learning guitar. I think this might have been one of the first uh, riffs he played. But I remember that Passage to Bangkok opening riff, yeah. um, absent the sort of vaguely racist Chinese or Asian inspired sort of. I know. I, I don't think that you could record this song these days. I think you'd no, get canceled you for that riff. So, so just to close out the lyrics, maybe for me, um, the one other thing I just wanted to point out is there's this great fun little throwaway line in there where they say fly by morning light. Yes. Yes. I know. I love it. I yeah. love that they're referencing themselves in this song. It's really fun. But it's very optimistic too, right? Yeah. It's fly by in the the way it's sung and the the words, you know, as they're written, is very optimistic. Yeah, it's it's, it's carrying in the theme of this fuck it all. We're gonna have fun. Like we're going out with a bang. Like, yeah, we're flying by morning light, bitches. I I love it. Get, all right, you know, so so can we talk about the music? Yes. All right. The first thing I'm going to say is this song, in my opinion, completely blows away the second song on the album curse that Rush has had for the past three records. 
I've said in the previous episodes that I feel like the second song on the album is always the shittiest song on the album. Except on and the that fourth is, album. <laughs> that is not that is not the case here. I mean, they I think this song is an absolute banger. I, I would say this this was the for growing up, this was always like the A-list. This was the top track, even more than 2112. Like th- this was the song off this album that I because again, it was my entry into Rushdom. Really? I, yeah, I, I think that's so cool. Up. I didn't know that. Yeah, so another I mean, thing, the, the, Sorry, riff, the riff, I mean, it's, it's just as iconic a riff as, as, um, uh, uh, the 2112. And, oh, the guitar sound is just so, it's so great. And can we talk like, about like the, the perfect es- espresso? The, the, uh, the guitar riff, as you've said, it is amazing, but what's even more amazing. And I think it's the first time that I've heard rush do this in their catalog Mm -hmm. is the second time he put the second bar of that verse, uh, he harmonizes with himself. So there's a second track of Alex playing the riff, but he's playing it up. Yeah. I don't know by how much, but, but it's that. You know, he it the the first time it's just it's just the one guitar and it goes da 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 da. Then the second time through he goes. Yeah. There's one going yeah. like I, not quite. I don't know. How, I don't know what the interval is. You would probably be able to figure and, that and out because you're not recall, a drummer. I recall Ara, and if he's listening to this, this is a good test to see if he's listening to the entire episode. Um, if if I recall him recording, my brother recording the main line and then playing it back and playing the harmony. <laughs> yeah his recording so all right <laughs> text me or let me know if you a if you listen to this this far uh it's uh and uh if you did that or not but 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 i actually felt like that was a really interesting innovation um or shift for alex again i'm not 100 percent certain that he never does that on the rest of the in the rest of the catalog but i believe yeah. this is the first time that that he actually is is playing a second guitar part and just doing a straight harmony with his with the with the primary part yeah and if you want to hear more about guitar harmonies just wait for the uh, backtracking iron maiden iron maiden uh, i know Uh, that's exactly what i was thinking of in here you know what's interesting uh this idea this thought just came into my 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 head um as do so many other thoughts that i spare you uh (laughs) but you know, so so just hearkening back to when I said my brother played this riff. So that would have been like around 1986, maybe 85, probably 86 or 87. And this album would have been like eight or nine years old by then. Um, and it's interesting because I recall when I got into Rush, I didn't like, I, I you know, I would listen to whatever the latest album was and I would get it. And that started at Hold Your Fire. But when you go back to their catalog, what was the rhyme or reason for how we got into, I, I remember I'd get into like yeah. hemispheres and then I would get into signals then back to fair, like there, cause you, back then you would buy an album kids and you would like listen to it <laughs> and it would yeah. just sit in your CD player on your record table or your tape deck or whatever. And you would like develop a, a, a re- relationship with it because you didn't want to have to keep changing them out and everything. And you would actually listen, you'd look at the album art and I'm, I'm wondering what drove that, you know, when you'd go to the record store, which yeah. catalog of any band for that matter, yeah. you would go buy. Like, yeah, it's I, interesting. I, I think it's really interesting. I don't remember um, 
it, when we were that age, certainly, or when I was that age, I don't remember paying really any attention to the sequence of albums in a band's yeah. catalog. But I did get to a point when I was probably 17, 18, 19, where I obsessively would listen to things in sequence. So like, let's say I found a band that I liked, like I just happened to listen to an album that I thought was really good. And it was like the band's third album. Mm hmm. The first thing I'd do after I heard that third album is I'd buy their first album and their second album and listen to those in sequence to try and kind of understand mm -hmm. the development of the band over albums. So that was something that I was very into, but I don't, I definitely was not into that as much in high school. I don't think, I think that was yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. I remember like 86, 87, I wanted to find out what Rush's catalog was. So I, I tried going to Wikipedia, but I couldn't even get online. <laughs> Yeah. That was yeah, that's right. You, you just kept bummed. on, you just <laughs> kept on calling. I, I remember do you, uh, side note, but uh, in those days, that was when I, I think you, you guys had a modem as well, right? On your computer. Yeah. So the first email messages I had sent were to you. They weren't even emails. <laughs> they were just messages on a BBS system Yeah, that you would just, we would just pick a BBS system and we tried downloading. I don't know if you did, but I would try downloading like a naked picture of a woman and I would set the download to start. Did like I ever 10 try or, that? 10 or 11 <laughs> at night. And it would take until like four in the morning. And say, don't use the phone. I'm downloading I'm using the internet. Uh, that was the internet back then. Back yeah, then. no, I totally remember that. I, the, my favorite memory of that is we would, um, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Seth Haran had a BBS. One of the Haran brothers ran mm -hmm. a BBS on their computer at home. Yeah. And you know, I don't know what we Sysops, like all the Sysops like would, would wear all black. That was like the thing. I, I, I just, uh, I remember calling their BBS, but the funny thing that would happen is you would, you would have your computer dial their, their house basically. Yeah. And the, and the modem had a speaker on it and their mom would answer the phone and hear the, hear the modem, make that modem oh, noise hilarious. and be like, Seth, it's a computer again. You could, you could like hear her oh yell at, at her son. That it's I like, never had that Seth, happen. It's a computer again. And he was like, just, <laughs> all right, I'll put it on the modem. <laughs> oh, geez. But yeah, I, I do re vividly remember, this is sort of going off on a tangent here, uh, but, but it might be a nice story if you're smoking a J while we're talking about a passage to Bangkok. Uh, I remember when you went to Denison, I was like, we got to use email now? Like, what's email? Like, how do you, oh, you got to get like a disk from your, you know, computer lab and, 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 yeah. and that using email from home at the time required actually installing a Winsock client on your PC. I was using a PC. Uh, because the, the software didn't come with TCP IP protocols built in. Yeah. You actually had to yeah. download a client specifically for the express use of connecting and establishing a TCP IP connection with another yeah. computer. Well, I think this whole section, Rafi, and let it, you know, in case there was anyone who felt like doing an in-depth rush podcast was not nerdy enough, I think we just delivered <laughs> the additional level of nerdiness that is going to be required for people to feel confident that we're absolute dorks. Why don't we move on to Twilight Zone? Do you have anything else you want to talk no, about? No, no, no. I mean, it's great. It's a great song. Um, there, there's not much there. It's fun, and uh, I think we touched on all the uh, the, the hot takes. Uh, so let's listen to the next song. We 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 referenced uh, the Twilight Zone in twenty one twelve, and uh, if if you weren't convinced that the band were total like Rod Serling fans, I think this song will convince you otherwise. Uh, so this is the Twilight Zone off of Rush's twenty one twelve album. I need a 
21 or uh sorry twilight zone three minutes and 17 seconds of lee and lifeson uh music and pure lyrics yeah and i want to congratulate you on not saying okay you said okay yeah. all right um, uh, so i've got one thing that i want to say about the lyrics before we get started yes. my opinion of this song when i read through the lyrics and listened to the song again and you're gonna have to kind of go with me here this song is reminiscent of a 1980s Kenny Loggins soundtrack song to me. You know what I'm talking about? Kenny Loggins, the king of 1980s yeah, soundtracks. I, I it, but it, I don't think it falls in the Yacht Rock category. No, it's musically it's not the same, but lyrically it, it reminds me of the same. And and here's 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 what I would say about that. Um, Kenny Loggins songs like Danger Zone and It's All Right were the most vapid lyrics ever. They were absolutely about nothing. It's like somebody approached him, some some agent said, hey, Kenny, do you want to do a song for Caddyshack? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then he just like wrote some lyrics that were like, Caddyshack, going on golfing <laughs> now. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. just like totally dumb. They were like and I, I feel like that's what there's like, there's like no meaning to this song he's just kind of like he's basically just saying in these lyrics twilight zone isn't that a cool show <laughs> you know what i mean so this song i love the chorus it's so <laughs> mellow and smooth and you know what is like uh, i don't smoke marijuana i don't use edible i i have but i just don't i just don't do it um but if you do what a great song to get stoned to after you listen to passage of bangkok because it's just like not just lyrically but but the sound of the chorus with the whispering yeah. you have entered the twilight so because they're yeah. whispering on top of the lyrics so this was actually written spontaneously in the studio they didn't go into the studio with any plans to record this uh the band would record and write songs spontaneously in the studio and there's been a handful that they've done throughout their catalog and this was the first um yeah. which apparently was a very enjoyable experience for the guys in the band uh but again another really light fun song and i don't think that was an accident that <laughs> they put these two very light fun songs uh after 2112 because because again very heavy thematically and you got to balance a little you know the the sweet with the sour or the sour with the sweet rather I, well, I will say that lyrically, I think that this is a fairly dumb song. I don't, I don't like the lyrics to this song, but I do. I like the music reasonably well. Um, I don't like the opening of the song, but one thing that I think is notable again, we have another moment of Alex harmonizing with Alex here. Yeah, Second song in a row. True. And I think it is the, again, I think this is like kind of the first couple of times he's ever done this in their catalog, which I thought was interesting. And yet the another song I vividly recall my brother Ara playing relatively, you know, mediocre, mediocre, <laughs> mediocrely, but it's the, the poorly, <laughs> poorly. <laughs> averagely. <laughs> um, I mean, well enough, but I mean, imagine like a, I don't know, he might've been like 13 year old playing this on the guitar without the context of the drums or the the rhythm yeah. guitar it's just like a, a squealing <laughs> and, and I, but i remember it and i remember hearing the song i was like oh that's what it sounds like yeah well now, by the way I, for the, for those who don't know he ended up becoming an amazing guitarist and so it's not like he remained uh playing these songs uh these riffs 
uh, poorly. So the the I, I would agree with what you said about the chorus. I think that the chorus to this song is really the part of the song that's great. I think the verses, at least for me, musically, I'm I'm not in love with. I I feel like they kind of sound a little bit goofy. Um, but when you get into that chorus after that, do, 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 and then it's like the, the really kind of languid, moody chorus. I, I love that part. Yeah. And the way, again, the lyrics and the music dance together really nice where he's singing, use the key, unlock the door. Yeah. See what your fate might have in store. And then the squeal into the guitar. Yeah. Oh it's, my God. It's got that's some squeal. moments. It's got some yeah. great moments. No. And I, I also, I also, I second what you said, the whisper of the lyrics that comes in on the second instance of the chorus behind his singing is very creepy and very cool. Yes. Yeah. And, um, my last comment about the music or the, the recording here, and we may have to pause so you can go and listen to this is at one minute and nine seconds. There's a very weird sound that almost, it, 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 it sounds out of place. And I was like, are they actually doing a sound effect of use the key to unlock the door? It almost sounds like a lock or a door being opened or something. No, and- I, f- I hear, I know what you're talking about. And there are moments where there, there are sort of extraneous sounds that come in. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Usually it's not intentional and it just sort of shows up there. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, that was, yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> again not much more to say about this uh, other than what we yeah, said. This I, is a, this is a this is a bad one for me. This is this is it has moments for sure, but I think uh, overall this isn't one of my favorite Rush songs. Well, let's listen to the next song, Lessons, because uh, this one I have a little bit of uh, uh, some some history to this, which which is uh, uh, I, I think will be of interest to our listeners. So this Excellent. is Lessons off of Rush Twenty One. Yeah. This song was one of two songs that um, Alex Lifeson wrote uh, entirely. I think the second song was, I forgot what the name of it was. I'll look it up, but it's on Snakes and Arrows. So it was a long time. Um, But it's, if you just listen to the lyrics and you don't have the context for it, it's a weird song. It's, it's, he's singing about sweet memories and then he's yeah. like, you don't listen, you know, you don't listen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, what's, what is this about? So tell me what it is about to you. Uh, honestly, I, I, I read the lyrics and I really tried to think about them. My notes are, this feels pretty thin. Um, I think you could interpret this as a dialogue between two people. Um, like there's a, some kind of an authority figure that's in the, that's in the chorus. And then there's like more of like the protagonist in the verses. But I, I think that at least for me, making the assertion that that's what this song is would be kind of a long walk. I'd be pushing it. So I just kind of felt like this was like a pretty generic meh lyric. Yeah. So let, let me put a little bit of cornstarch in there and thicken it up for you. All right. Um, so <laughs> this song apparently is, is sort of like a, a, you know, Alex arguing with his parents. So he he wanted to be a musician, um, and his parents were resistant, and and they didn't really support him in that. I think eventually they came around, uh, at least they should have. 
Um, and it's, it's basically him thinking about when, when he, like his passion for music and being told he can't do it or, or should have a backup plan or whatever. But there's, so there was a documentary that was made in 1973 called come on children. It was a Canadian documentary where they followed, um, a handful of kids, Canadian kids, um, teenagers and while well, they yeah. sort of figure out life and what they want to do with their life. And one of the, uh, teens, who was, I think he was a junior in high school that was featured in this hour and a half documentary, which is available online, uh, was Alex Zivajinovich. And he, in it, Alex Zivajinovich. there was a famous, there's a scene, uh, but the, he's, he's in a lot of scenes in this. Like, I mean, he's playing his guitar, electric guitar for a bunch of kids. And so it's a really interesting insight into early rush because it's shot on 16 millimeter film. It's, it's a relatively yeah. high quality for the, for the era and the medium it was shot on. Um, but there's a scene and you can look this up on, on YouTube. So on YouTube, look up rush Alex Lifeson and his parents argue about his future. It's about yeah. a seven minute, 30 second clip of him and his, at his parents' house talking about um, him doing music and why he doesn't need to study at school and his parents trying to convince him otherwise. And that really, from what I can gather from the research I've done in this song, is the essence of what Lessons is about. So go watch that documentary. I'll wait. And it's an hour and a half. No, uh, go watch that documentary and then come back and listen to the song. And I think it'll, it'll, it's still relatively thin. I'm, I'm not going to argue that it, it isn't, but I think it'll add a, a, a little bit more context to help you enjoy it. Well, I, I definitely, I have not seen that documentary, although I have heard a little bit about it. Um, but I will, I will absolutely go away and, uh, watch that Rafi. So you want to talk about the le- uh, the music a little bit? Yeah. So if oh. for, for being an Alex song, you, yeah. you go, I was just going to say for being an Alex song, it's not like the greatest guitar riff. I mean, no. it's got some rock and guitar stuff, but it's mostly acoustic or, you know, clean guitar. And, uh, and there's not really anything, even the guitar solo, there's nothing no. remarkable from a guitarist perspective on this. No, I would say that the only thing that was remarkable about the guitar to me was that there's a moment in the bridge where Alex harmonizes with Getty's vocals on guitar. You didn't You're listen trying- again where he says, you didn't listen again. Yeah. Nee, 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 nee. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that Alex is definitely discovering something in this and where he's like, oh yeah, it'd be kind of cool if I harmonized with stuff, including myself on, on the guitar. I, I would agree. Pretty, pretty forgettable. The bass. I think overall the, the composition here is pretty forgettable. The bass though, this song is really the song that made me kind of think like, or maybe notice like, gosh, like Getty is so busy in this song. There is a little lick that he plays in the beginning of the chorus that is like a very fast Steve Harris style kind of like triplet thing. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I don't. I, he like I goes, it's like on the, on the bass. And I just, it, it sticks out to me because it's like, I, I just think busier than some of the some of the bass playing that he's done on the previous records. But way, you like know, playing those Steve Harris like like Roland like trip like that's yeah. a thousand times harder than anything that I've tried to learn of Rush. Really, and and it's I mean, impossible. Like he does them in this song. I mean, if I'm not go listen to it, but he does them in this song in the in the beginning of that chorus that are they're so fast. It's like Steve Harris would be like, whoa. 
I'm going to go listen to it uh, again, learning all the time on the rush. Okay. Well, I could be wrong too. <laughs> Feel free to correct me if I am. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say, I think that we're kind of in the same place for me. I think that this is like barely serviceable rock. Um, and as if to prove how barely serviceable it is, you will notice that it has a weak ass fade out at the end. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So I mean, wanna... yeah, the lyrics are just so still you question why no you didn't listen again no whoa you didn't listen again <laughs> it's just I don't know who's talking I, I I'm assuming it's a dialogue between his parents and he and his parents um, I'm gonna ask him I'm gonna find him and ask him yeah I um I yeah so anyway I th I think lessons is pretty forgettable three minutes and fifty one seconds I think probably the fact that it's relatively short is the best thing about it it's not bad it's just pretty average I I don't think it's a standout. You want to move on to tears, Roth? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any more to unpack. Um, I think watching the documentary might uh, uh, give you everything you need. All right. Well, let's find out, Roth. What will touch you deeper? Tears that fall from eyes that only cry. That fall from my behind. Okay, um, let's, 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 we're not doing it justice. Let's take a listen to this. This is Tears off of 2112. Roth pulling the heartstrings. It's like taking yeah. my heartstrings and it's just yanking them. Yeah. This was written by Getty, right? He wrote the lyrics. Getty wrote the lyrics to this song. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so I think that, I think that there's a lot, that there's a lot to talk about in the lyrics here. And I really, um, I actually think that these are terrific lyrics and I'm going to talk if you'll uh, indulge me for a little bit about why. Um, it is maybe a love song. It feels a bit like a love song, but I love the fact that it's unclear who this song is about specifically. And it's just really expressing a very sweet uh, set of emotions. Um, the, these are not, these are not direct lyrics at all. Um, it is not narrative at all. Um and I think that contrast is something that contrast with like the rest of the songs on the album, well, maybe not lessons as we've talked about, but like, if you contrast like the lyrical content of tears with 2012, I think it's just a really nice juxtaposition. Yeah. I mean, this song for me musically, uh, is a bit depressing. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, this, <laughs> You so you don't you don't have anything to talk about the lyrics though you're just gonna say fuck the, the lyrics fuck the, the song fuck it all the, no the lyrics are deep and they're they're touching but they're also depressing yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. um you know this was one of the first uh, the first song that Rush did that does feature the Mellotron I, I think you had mentioned it. they didn't use the yes. Mellotron in 2112 yeah uh, they used the Mini Moog but the, this was the first song that that featured the Mellotron. I want to go on the record as saying, and, and I know this is controversial, I think the Beatles used the Mellotron better than Rush did in the song. Um, they use this for the 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 the, the string pad. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the opening to um, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I think, was more interesting than the string pads that we we heard here. Uh, this was more, to me, it was just, it was like that kind of like dated early 70s prog rocky. I mean, that's uh, what we're talking about, but it was, yeah. it, 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 it's not, it, it, it's iconic, but it's not like, for me, it's not like what inspires, um, uh, you know, the admiration of that era. I, I am going to perfectly disagree with you, Roth. Okay. I love this song, and in particular, I love the Mellotron. I, I, I my notes here literally. I wrote, "Gotta love that Mellotron." Um, <laughs> I, I, I love Mellotron generally because it has this awesome warbly analog feel. It is like very fake sounding, but incredibly warm sounding. So, yeah. it, you know, to compare, for example, a Moog with a Mellotron, which are both used kind of by Rush around this time, yeah. my per obviously they're doing very different things and they generate very different tones, but I prefer the Mellotron vastly. Um, I just love the warmth and like analogness of, of the way that, that it sounds. And I think it actually gives this you know, I think Mellotron can give things a dated sound. And I think this song probably does sound a bit dated, but I just think it's, it's, it's so warmth. It reminded me mostly of, uh, almost a moody blues type song. Yeah. I don't like the moody blues. Okay. Well then maybe it's not your song. <laughs> it's um, not my song. Now, now, um, Something came up. I, I've been reading uh, my my sister very uh, thoughtfully purchased me for Christmas a book called Rush Album by Album by Martin Popoff. Um, I'm really, really enjoying the book. Mostly I'm enjoying the way it's structured because it really has kind of a chapter on each of the each of the albums. And I think it mm -hmm. makes it um it, it makes it a great reference book for doing this podcast. But one thing that came up um the, the 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 book is structured so that there's a short section of history on on each album and then there's essentially a number of people who are interviewed about about the album and there are people you know both who are affiliated with rush and like kirk hammett from um metallica is is one of the people who's interviewed um but there's a whole dialogue uh in the 2112 um album section about this song and a discussion about neil peart's drumming and one of the people who is interviewed in that makes the assertion around this song that he would prefer for John Rutsey to have played this song than Neil Peart because he thinks Neil Peart really overplays in this song. And I, I just can, wanted to actually put yeah. that out there to you. Um, I, I never thought of it, um, but it seems, uh, it seems like a, a it's a logical thing to say. It's not like it's completely off base. Yeah. I, 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 his drumming does not bother me in this song because I just, I, I, in some, in so many ways, I feel like when I come to rush, I kind of come to expect Neil Peart and whether it's overplaying or not, it's kind of the way he plays. And, and that's just kind of <laughs> what, well, what you get when you listen to rush. Context? Because I think, I think John Rutsey, you would you would run the risk of overplaying in terms of you know rocking too hard. He might yeah. not have played as many notes, but I think Neil Peart has more capabilities to do it thoughtfully. Maybe I, I think a happy medium would be to direct or to produce Neil Peart to play 
less maybe I um I would be curious to know how that conversation would go for a producer. I don't I don't know, but my sense is maybe he wasn't uh for most of his career too too open to suggestions on on his playing. Well, this is why we say for good reason. I mean, right, he's Terry legendary. Brown. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just thought that was an interesting little note. Um the last very personal thing um that I'd point out here, not 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 relevant to too many people this song i associate we've talked about this with some other songs i associate this song very very clearly with like eighth grade ninth grade there was a mixtape that i made of songs that i would listen to to take a nap between football practices during i don't know if you kind of remember in like football in the summer you'd have double sessions you'd have like two practices a day and you'd have like a few hours between practices every day during the summer i'd go home between those two practices and take a nap and i would put on this mixtape every day to fall asleep to and this song was definitely on it. Did you I do shower not, between the practices? Um, I do not remember whether I showered. I probably showered, but I may not have. I'm not certain. Um, but I definitely took a nap, and I definitely listened to this Rush tape, which included um, some Led Zeppelin, for sure. This Rush song, definitely. Yeah. And I really don't remember anything else. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, this this song is, is one that I you know i i don't have really much opinions on either way uh, okay. other than what i've already expressed uh, but it would be interesting to go back and listen to it again and see if uh if neil's playing is a little too heavy-handed uh well this is i think figuratively i think the fact that you kind of said you don't like this song it's just really sad um this may be a core this may be a core difference between our musical like tastes I, I said i said that it doesn't really do it for me it's not All right. it's not my favorite well, why don't we move on to something for nothing to see if maybe that does it for you, Roth? Yeah, I think people are are, are probably using this podcast to go to sleep by now because it's, <laughs> it's like two hours long. So, so we got to talk a little bit faster now because we were criticized that we need to talk a little All bit right, faster. So, so this next song is called "Something for Nothing." It's the last song on the track by uh, last song on the album by Rush Twenty One Twelve. "Something for Nothing." Let's give it a listen. Wow, you don't This, this is the this is the rush I know. This is the good old bleeding heart libertarian uh, Neil Peart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean lyrically, I really don't think there's any new ground here. Um, for me, this song it it re it, it articulates the same kind of you know libertarian self reliance stuff that Neil hits on in a number of songs, in particular Anthem. I think this is most evocative of Anthem. Um, it, but I but I think one thing that's kind of interesting to me, it's back to the tone that the song Take a Friend had on the eponymous debut album Rush. Mm-hmm. It just feels like the band is yelling at somebody. It's done <laughs> much more artfully here, but it's still the same to me. I've got a hot take. Okay. Okay. Harkening back to the grand finale of 2112. This, now imagine... You're like a, a a general from the the elder race, and you've just assumed control of the Solar Federation. Okay. okay. You you go into this cave and you see the protagonist, and he's got yeah. lifeblood coming from his hands, but he's alive, and you heal him. Oh, up he's alive. 
and then, then it might, to, it must and, not be lifeblood then, Roth. It just must be and, blood. And they say to him, you can't have something for nothing. You can't have freedom for free. You won't get by with the sleep still in your eyes, no matter what you're. And then he kicks him in the ribs. Yeah. So maybe this yeah. is the elder race returning to tell him like, we're here now get off your ass and stop feeling sorry for yourself. And, uh, yeah, strongly. No, no matter what your Ralph. dream might be, you gotta, you gotta like do it. I so, don't, I don't like this take. I think this is, I don't like this take. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. This is crazy. <laughs> um, I, yeah, no, I feel like, I feel like this is, I, I feel like this is a really, it's a good song. I like this song quite a bit, but lyrically, I just feel like it's a retread of Anthem. Um, musically though, can we, can we move on to that? Yeah. So the this verse. was the first, by the way, this was the first, one of the first bass parts that I learned too, that I played very uh, poorly as well when I was learning bass. Wow. Okay. So it's got that, it's got that very, you know, melodic uh, bass opening. Yeah, it, it does have that. It's a very melodic bass opening. And then the bass in the chorus, again, I feel like is just fast and furious, kind of Steve Harris-esque again. Is that wrong? No, it's right. And and I remember playing it. The, the chorus always felt a little, um, I don't want to say um, embryonic or not fully formed, but it seemed a little um, sophomoric. Like it, yeah. it, you, could, you could write a better chorus musically in terms of the chord progression. And, and what I mean by that is if, if you're in a middle school band, you could probably write that chord progression just yeah. like the, you didn't listen again. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's nothing like, yeah, and, and, and this isn't a critique of rush per se. I mean, sounds like a critique of rush Roth. One of the, one of the things I've said, and you'll hear me say this, especially as we get into the, the synth era is that one of the things that was the genius of especially uh, Alex Lifeson was, I mean, he invented and created these chord progressions that are just mind blowing. Like, like I, I don't know, like that's that's sort of the litmus test for me is like, is this something that I could write? Is this something that I can do? And for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of what Rush does, I'm like blown away because I'm like, where did they even get the inspiration to do much of this stuff? Yeah, but here, not really. Or in um, in uh, um, memories or lessons rather um i'm like yeah i could come up with that riff uh and so we get two of those in one album but we also get some amazing uh works of genius too i i would agree with you that i, I so i think generally i i really like this song i feel like it's a very live sounding song and a very rocking song i i think that the herky-jerky counting thing that they've now been doing for two albums and and are getting increasingly effective at um i actually think works the best so far in this song the, so do you, do you know kind of what section i'm um referring to no because i don't hear any hurdy-gurdy on this song either no, herky-jerky oh, herky herky-jerky jerky counting and okay. it's and it, it goes you know that part yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think it works really well. It fits very organically in this song in a way that I would argue it doesn't even fit into twenty one twelve. Um, however, they fade this song out dumbly and lazily. They fade this song out when clearly what they should have done to end this song is they should have gone back to that herky jerky riff and ended with that think about that for a second i will i'm going to contemplate that as i drift off to sleep uh tonight i think i just blew your mind out of your asshole is what <laughs> i just did hang on let me check rush 
Uh, listen, I, I know oh, that you're probably <laughs> you're probably not going to record any more albums, but I, there's nothing that you know these these uh, these jerk off producers can do for you that I can't do. I mean, Terry Brown, you know, Peshaw. But I think it's worth noting for me that the the spontaneous studio album Twilight Zone I like better than the last three songs on this album. Well, why don't we get to best song and worst song? You want to just put a put a pin in the whole thing and and end it there? Yeah, I, I'm uh, uh, best song twenty one twelve. Ah, interesting. I, mean, I think we need to go deeper though. Um, I I would say Temples of Syrinx. It's oh, okay. So iconic. I think we have to get into like the the actual yeah section I'll, because I'll allow it. I'll allow that. Okay. So twenty one twelve section two. Um, maybe excellent. One. All right. Uh, so for me, best song on this album, Passage to Bangkok. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. I I debated I 2112, yeah. but um, no, it, I see you know, that. I, I actually, what was interesting for me is if, if, if we allowed naming a movement in fountain of Lamnath as your favorite song, which I think we did in the last episode, um, I kind of went through 2112. I think 2112 as an entire piece is really great, but there is no one movement in it that I like that I think would be better without the rest of the song. Whereas with fountain of Lamnath, that's exactly how I felt. I felt, I felt like, you know, um, no one at the bridge could stand alone and would be better if it was just kind of its own song in some ways. Yeah. Um, but 2112, it was harder for me to kind of pick apart. And so I think just as a, as a consistently strong whole, I, I, I felt like passage of bank passage to Bangkok was my favorite. Well, thank you for not picking the spite song and saying yeah. tears for, yeah, uh, no, no, I like tears, but it's not my favorite. So what about worse song, Roth? Worst song, you know it. I I can't I can't do this to Alex Lifeson and pick lessons, and it's not my least favorite song. I would have to go with Tears. Wow, There's well, one that's... song. And, and and folks, when we say worst song, it's not like we hate the song. It's not like it's just if I had to skip over a song listening to this, I would skip over Tears. Let's be honest. Yeah. Wow. That's that's that is the wrong choice. That's the first time, Roth, that you've made an objectively bad choice <laughs> since we've been doing the podcast. But that's okay. Listen, you can't bat a thousand. Um, history will be the determiner in that. Uh, history will be the terminator. Did the you de say determinate? Will determine that. <laughs> All right. So, worst song in my opinion, Twilight Zone. I I just feel like Twilight. <laughs> no, you're surprised, but I feel like even even I I feel like it's even more inconsistent than Lessons. And I feel like I'm, lyrically, I'm it's dumb. I'm literally speechless. I feel like it's as though the producers of Twilight Zone came to Rush and said, "Hey, listen, we're going to make a movie. We want for you guys to do the soundtrack. Make sure the lyrics are just exactly about Twilight <laughs> Zone and go no deeper than that." I think there's something endearing about the fact that that was written on the spot in the studio in the moment. I like the music. I think there are a lot of notable elements to it, which are unique, especially considering the circumstances under which it was written. I think it's in the, it's in the top, uh, how many songs are on the album? So there's, it's in the top five songs on the album. I think that it belongs on a mixtape with a bunch of Kenny Loggins soundtrack songs. 
Yeah, and you know what? Whoever gives that mixtape to someone is going to get laid more than the mixtape with tears on it. I'm just, that, I'm just that, that's you know what? That's actually fair. All right, Ralph. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of an epic 2112 episode. Next week on the pod, we are going to be covering our first live album, All the World's a Stage. All the World's a Stage with potentially some special guests. We yeah. Don't know yet. We, we we are hoping to have a guest join us Only uh, way to find out we're gonna we're gonna listen to the live album we're gonna talk about the live album we're not gonna do a song by song breakdown we're instead just gonna kind of appreciate the the live album overall talk a little bit about the the studio albums that are kind of covered in that live album and have a freeform conversation about this era of rush with whoever our special guest ends up being yeah, and we and we like to always say, you know, thank it, thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, we really sure do appreciate it. Uh, just because we don't like talking into the void, uh, we'd rather there be some uh, human flesh in that void uh, uh, with the the sound of our voices hitting their eardrums. Um, Dan- Roth loves human flesh in his void. <laughs> You heard it here first. I'm just trying to keep up the surreal 2112 vibe. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but uh, use your imagination like we did uh, listening to this wonderful album by the uh, the rock band Rush. Uh, and please, heard about. please keep listening. Subscribe. Write a review. Um, send us an email. Backtrackingrocks, R-O-X, at gmail.com with any corrections, any requests, any suggestions, any thoughts or any uh, feedback that you've got for us. Yeah. And then also please follow us on Instagram at Backtrackingrocks, R-O-X, and on Twitter at Backtrackingrocks, R-O-X. So long. No fade out this time, kids. Later.